You can keep your Bible open to Romans chapter 7. So as you see, we're going to be studying the entirety of the chapter, and I'm assuming it stuck out to you just like it did me the first time I read this, that this is long, and this is complex, and this is challenging, and that is why I assigned it to Colin this week to preach, because I'm a smart guy, and then he got sick, so here we are, okay? And so I don't believe in karma, uh, but we'll just say God has a good sense of humor, right? Because here we are. So, but, um, you know, getting to study this this week has actually just been a joy because when you first read it, it is complex. It is a, it is. There's a lot of debates that center around this passage, but it is beautiful and it is so important. And so I'm excited to dive into it. But just to set expectations here, um, so we're going to be doing just just by way of there being 25 verses to cover. We're going to be doing more of a helicopter ride over this passage, right? And so, you know, there's two ways to explore the Smokies. You can go in all the trails and look at all the birds and look at all the trees, or you can get one of those sketchy helicopter sightseeing tour things and go over it that way. Um, We're going to do that. Hopefully it's not sketchy, but we're going to do that, right? We're going to go over and kind of, I hope that we'll give you a lay of the land, give you an understanding of the passage as a whole. Maybe we'll hover out, hover around on some parts specifically, Um, But just know there will probably be some questions that I can't answer, but I would love to talk to you after if you have any questions. So um, let's do this. We're going to break the passage up into two main points, two main points. And just to give credit where credit is due, uh, I got this from Tim Keller. Sometimes as a preacher, you hear someone break up a passage and you're like, I can't improve on that. So we're just going to roll with it. Okay, so two main points. And here's the two main points. So verses 7 through 13, 7 through 13, those verses are about the war you cannot win. The war you cannot win. In this section, Paul is speaking in the past tense about his life before he became a follower of Jesus. And then in verse 14, the tense changes. He begins to speak in the present tense. And verses 14 through 25 are about the war you can't lose. So what you'll see is there's, there's two wars. There's a war before you come to know Jesus, and then you come to know Jesus, and it's not that you're out of the war. You just get put into a different war. <laughs> but praise be to God, it's a war that you cannot lose. And then we're not going to spend much time on the, the first six verses, but I think as we talk, when you go back and read the first six, you'll understand them a little bit better because they really act as a summary for the rest of the chapter. Okay? So let's jump into it. Point one. Verses 7 through 13, the war you cannot win. And we see here that, that, that Paul has a lot to say about the law, right? He goes on and on and on about the Old Testament law. And here's how he begins in verse 7. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not cut. So what's he saying? He's saying something that that actually he said over and over and over again through Romans. And the famous analogy that most pastors use, we talk about is that the law functions like a mirror, right? It functions like a mirror. It shows your sin back to you. And so J.D. Greer takes it a step further. I think this is a helpful image. He says, picture in your house that you have this full-length mirror And you can look in it, and you can see yourself in this full-length mirror, but it doesn't stop there. That mirror also has an outline for your ideal build and weight. 
It has an, an outline for what you should look like. So you go to that mirror, you're feeling good, and then every time you look in it, you're reminded, I have a dad bod, right? There's that little outline of a six-pack, and I don't have that. And so the mirror is showing back to me where I miss the mark. And that's a dumb little analogy to show what the law does to us, right? The law does this. It shows how far we fall short, and that's the point Paul's making. When you look into the law, what comes back is how far you fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, right? All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The law shows us that. And then in verse 9, Paul makes a really interesting statement. He says this. He says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now that's interesting. That, that stumped me at first. Because when you read that, what it seems like Paul is saying is, I had this time where I was alive, I didn't know the law, and then I was introduced to the law, and it killed me, right? And so the law's bad. But that can't be it, because we know Paul's biography. There was never a time where Paul did not know the law. <laughs> he could not remember a time where he was not being trained in the law. He's a lot like me. My parents had me in church nine months before I was born, right? Like, I don't remember a time that I wasn't in church, wasn't learning the Bible. This is Paul. Right? From the time he can remember, he is learning this stuff. But it's even more extreme. That, you know, some of us have probably grown up in church, and, and you're like me. You don't remember a time not being in church. But for Paul, it's even more extreme. This is a man who has been trained in the law his entire life. He's memorized most of it. He's devoted his life to it. His brain is saturated in it. I mean, I, you know, I know my Bible. I spent a lot of money on degrees to learn about the Bible. But my, my brain is also saturated in football stats and quotes from the office and all this other stuff, right? Paul's different. Paul is, this is a brain that is saturated in the Bible. It is saturated in the, wall, in the law. You cut this guy and the law comes out. So just by knowing his biography, we, we know it can't mean that, that he was oblivious to the law and then it was introduced to him. What it must mean, and this is what most commentators agree on, what it must mean is that there was a time in his life that he didn't fully understand the implications of it. But at some point it came home, and the phrase he used is that it killed him. I think what he means is he saw his sinfulness clearly. His, his sin was exposed. He realized that he was in a war, and it's a war that he cannot win. And that's where the illustration of the mirror breaks down. Right? If you had that mirror that showed you the outline, that could motivate you, right? You could go eat better and exercise and maybe get to that, right? But in the law, when you look in that mirror, it's a war that you cannot win. It's, it's a losing battle. I think this is really helpful. Paul actually points out one commandment in particular that showed this to him, that, that killed him, that brought this home. And it's actually the law, do not covet, which if you know your Ten Commandments is the Tenth Commandment, right? The last one of the commandments. And so I love picturing this, right? Paul's telling us this story of this, this law really coming home to him. And I love picturing this because you have, you can picture a young Paul, right? And so, you know, we're imagining here, there's this young Paul and he's he knows his Old Testament. He knows, for him, just the Bible. He knows his, his Hebrew Bible. 
He knows the, the, the Ten Commandments, and he's just working through them. And we know that, you know, as we go through the, the Ten Commandments, Jesus comes in in the Sermon on the Mountain. He ups the ante, right? But a young Paul doesn't know this. And so he's reading through these, and he's feeling pretty good about himself, right? And so, you know, hey, I don't worship idols. I observe the Sabbath. I honor my parents. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen anything. I don't lie. I tithe everything I make. And on down the list he goes, more puffed up, more puffed up, more puffed up. I'm killing it. I'm a Pharisee. (laughs) Like, I'm trained in this. I'm a good guy. And then Law 10 comes out of nowhere and hits him upside the head. It knocks him out. He says says, it it kills him. And it's when the law says, do not covet. Do not covet. Now, why that one? Why do not covet? Well, we were talking about this in community group on Thursday, and, and it seemed like, and I, I just steal everything from my community group, by the way. Every good insight comes from them. But it seems like what we agreed on was that what makes this different is that all the other of the Ten Commandments, all the other laws of the Ten Commandments are about external obedience, right? But this one focuses on the hearts, on the heart. All the other ones, the other nine are externally observable. They demand behavior. It's about what you should and should not do. But coveting, that sneaks up on you, doesn't it? Right? The rest aren't as sneaky. I mean, look, I mean, adultery's pretty cut and dry. <laughs> you don't wake up in the morning and go, you're not my wife? What happened? Right? Like, it, it doesn't sneak up on you. There's, there's choices that have to be made. Right? There's, there's a reason that you got there. You've got to make a couple choices. Coveting, though, it, it sneaks up on you. It's about your heart. It's about what it's attracted to. To covet is to want what isn't yours. It's being dissatisfied with what you have and looking enviously at what others have. But even more than that, coveting is about why you do the things that you do. Coveting is about your motivation. It's about what you desire supremely over everything else. That's commandment 10. So why does this one hit Paul? Well, if you think about it, this is really the commandment that's under all the other commandments. That's what Martin Luther said. This is the foundation for every other commandment. Think about this. Why do you steal? Because you covet what someone else has. Why do you lie? Because the truth won't help you get what you want. Why do you commit adultery? You want someone that God hasn't given to you. But it gets even crazier. And this is what I think, this is what I think got a young Paul right here. This is why this one just got him. Because for some people, you have to ask this, why do you keep the law? Why are you not committing adultery? Why are you not stealing? Why are you not lying? Why do you keep the Sabbath? Why do you tithe? Why do you do all these things? For many, it's covetousness. I want respect. I want status. I want God to owe me, right? I'm doing all the good things. One through nine, I got them, but why am I doing them? Because I'm coveting something that I don't have. So Paul's been good. Right? I mean, we can assume that. He says that. He says, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm killing it. His, I mean, this dude's LinkedIn profile is crazy, right? Like, like literally, this, this guy's amazing. He, he has been doing, I mean, we can, we, can, we can assume he's been doing all the externals of the law, at least more than most. You think you're good, Paul's got you beat. But what's he missing? 
He began maybe, and again, we're, I'm, I think this is what he's trying to say. He began to look at the law, look at his good behavior, and ask, why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? Is it because I love God? Is it because I'm a good person? No, it's because I covet what the law can give me. And he realized that he was in a war that he cannot win. That he cannot save himself by his own effort. Instead, he has to be born again. He needs a new heart. Because he could not stop his sinful heart from coveting. You know, Augustine, this is how he describes sin. In Latin, it's incurvatus in se. It means sin makes you curved in on yourself. That's a great image, isn't it? It makes you curve in on yourself. It makes you all about you. You become the, the seagull on Finding Nemo, right? Mine, 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 mine. Your whole life is about me, me, me. <laughs> Everything you do, even the good sin, this is what sin, this is how, this is what sin does to us. Even the good things we do are about me. <laughs> so on the outside, I, I look great and I give and I'm a member of a church and I teach a class, and I lead a community group, and maybe I'm a deacon or an elder or whatever, right? I have all these externals, but because of sin, I'm really all about me. So before I move on, let me just ask, is that you this morning? <laughs> okay. Is that you this morning? You're here every week. You're doing all the stuff you got to do. You're checking off the boxes. You're giving. You're going on mission trips. You're doing it all but your motivation is out of whack. You're like the older brother in the prodigal son story. The way that you're avoiding God is by being good <laughs> so that he owes you. Right? Flannery, Flannery O'Connor says, the best way to avoid Jesus is by not sinning. <laughs> okay? So some people actually avoid sin in order to actually avoid Jesus and having to trust in him as your savior. Is that you this morning? You know, if that is, because look, I, I, I live, I still have this tendency in my own life. I, I know this about myself. If that is you, if you say, that's me, like I, like, I got the LinkedIn profile, I'm, you know, I'm killing it on all these ministry things, I, you know, I, look, I'm doing pretty well. If that's you, I give you permission to do something that I wouldn't usually give you permission to do. You can tune me out the rest of the sermon. Because what you need to do is just go to God right now, <laughs> Okay. You need to go to God and repent. And you say, repent of what? I'm doing everything right. You need to repent of doing right for the wrong reasons. Right? Repent of doing right for the wrong reasons. That's what you need. That's what you need. Let's move on here. Point two. We've talked about the war that you can't win. The war you can't win. And so if you are... Without Jesus, if you're just trying to uphold the law, if you're trying to just do everything good but you haven't actually trusted in him, you can't win. But once you trust in him, when you put your faith in him, you actually enter into a different war. You enter into a different war. And it is a war that you cannot lose. And as I said, you know, this is, this is verses 14 through 25, and it deserves a lot more attention than I can give it. But I think what's clear here is that there is a war raging in Paul. <laughs> you felt that when, when Matthew read it, right? There is a war that is raging in Paul. Just listen to this again, starting in verse 15. It says, For I do not understand my own actions. 
For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then skipping to verse 24, kind of the climax here, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now remember who's talking here. This is the Apostle Paul. Okay? Probably, I mean, the greatest Christian ever, right? He's the one saying this. And this is actually so jarring. I, I was fascinated. Um, it's probably good that I didn't have as much time to prepare because I would have got way down too much in the weeds on this. But there's all these debates that have been going on for, for really the whole history of the church about who Paul is actually talking about here. Because some scholars read this and they see Paul saying this, and the first thing they say is, how could he be saying that? How can Paul, of all people, call himself a wretched man? How could this sanctified spiritual giant talk like this? But in the study I've been able to do, what I've landed on is the most obvious, unforced reading, is that Paul is talking about himself. And he's not talking about himself in the past tense. He is talking about himself in that very moment. Okay? Like the, Paul, as he is writing Romans, which we are now studying 2,000 years later, as he is writing this, this is his reflection on his current situation. And if we, if we take it that way, if we interpret it that way, which I think we should, there's two keys here, two key truths that really stick out that we need to see. Okay? And these are big. Here's number one. If this, if this is, you know, as we, I think this is Paul writing, talking about himself, here's what this teaches us as Christians. We are more sinful than we ever dared believe. We are more sinful than we ever dared believe. I think the reason that we, we, we squirm when we read this is because we don't want to face that, that we are more sinful than we ever dared believe. We, we go to great lengths to prove to ourselves that we are not really that bad. <laughs> don't you? I do. <laughs> I mean, I spend... I, you spent, like, I, most of my life, I just spent comparing to other people, <laughs> finding the people who were worse than me so I could feel good about myself. We go to great lengths to try to prove to ourselves that we're not really that bad. But here's what you have to think about. Think about this, okay? We, we, we sing about the cross. Oh, the bliss of that wonderful thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Amen. That's glorious. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why do you have to do it? I mean, you, you've heard about the cross your whole life, right? You know about the cross. We talk about it all the time. Why did he have to do it? My sin. <laughs> My sin, not in part, but the whole. Your sin. See, we, it's very easy to talk about the cross. You can wear the, the cross around your neck. You can put the cross on, on signs and put it everywhere. The cross, that, that's easy to talk about. But what we should be talking about is my cross. 
What did Jesus die on? Yeah, the cross, but he died on my cross, the, the cross that I deserved. It was my sin that put him there. John Stott nailed it. He said it this way, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. We have to see it as something done by us. And that makes us squirm, doesn't it? <laughs> that makes us squirm. We don't like that. We want to find a way to get out from under that. But when we look at the cross, the only adequate, appropriate response is to say what? What a wretched man that I am, <laughs> right? What a wretched man that I am. But we can't stop there. Can't stop there. Because it's actually at the foot of the cross. It's actually standing at the foot of the cross, looking at that, saying, oh, what a wretched man that I am. It's actually in that moment that true change comes. Because I have to make this clear. This is, this is where I think we could really go off the rails here. This is not a call to passivity. Because you could hear this wrong, you could take this wrong, and you could say, even the Apostle Paul is struggling like this. Even the Apostle Paul is a wretched man. What can I do? And you could throw up your hands and say, there's no point. Why pursue holiness? But that's not it at all. We are called to fight, okay? We are in a war, and we're not called to be pa passive bystanders. We are called to fight. Because we have to say, keep it in balance here, right? Because Paul can say, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. But you know what else he'll say? Follow me as I follow Christ. Right? He has the audacity, even though he is the wretched man that he is, he's fully aware of his own sin. He can say, follow me as I follow Jesus. As I fight the good fight, as I press on towards the goal, follow me. See the tension there? And here's what, here's what I think is happening. And maybe, you've, maybe you can relate to this. Here's what I think is happening in this passage. The more mature we become in Christ, the deeper we feel our need for Christ. You feel that? The more we mature in Christ, the deeper we feel our need for Christ. When I was 20, I was a follower of Jesus, and I thought I was pretty good. You know, like, like I, I, thought I, was, I thought I was doing pretty well. You know, I was working here as an intern. Like, you know, I, was, I, was, I was doing ministry. I thought I was doing pretty awesome. At 30, I, I truly believe, and people can correct me if I'm wrong, I truly believe that I'm more sanctified than I was at 20. <laughs> I feel like at 30, I, I haven't arrived yet, but I feel like I look more like Jesus than I did at 20. But here's what I'll tell you. I'm much more aware of my sin. I'm much more aware of the anger that's in me, the anxiety that's in me, the selfishness that's in me, the not trusting God that's in me pride that's in me, and I'm less prideful than I used to be. I'm less selfish than I used to be. I truly think this. I think I'm less anxious than I used to be, less angry than I used to be, but it doesn't feel that way because the longer I follow Jesus, I don't graduate from my need for grace. Instead, I see much more clearly how much I need it, right? I see much more clearly how much I need it. You know, I heard this, this illustration one time from a preacher, and this helped me in this fight. And so um, I, want you to, I want you to do a little thought experiment with me, okay? Go, go somewhere in your imagination. So back in World War II, 24,000 Allied soldiers 
stormed a beach in Normandy. Right? So we call that D-Day. Right? So maybe you've seen a movie with a scene about D-Day or pictures or whatever it may be. And so you can kind of picture this scene. Right? You, can, you can picture this. So, so, so go there. Okay? Let's say you're in a, in a boat and you're you know, huddled down in the boat with all the other, the, all the other soldiers and all you're hearing is screaming and you're hearing bullets that are just going over top of you and you hear the waves just crashing against the boat and you hear the bombs going off and you hear the people screaming and then all of a sudden you feel that boat come up to the shore and just stop and someone begins to yell go 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 and that door opens and you run out on that beach that's intense right Every time I watch a documentary about D-Day, I'm like, wow, I am weak, right? Like, I, oh, man, that scares me to death. But you're running out there, okay, and, you're, and you're, you're fighting this battle. Here's what I want you to think about. On that beach, there are going to be two types of soldiers. Two types of soldiers. There's one type of soldier that is serene. You look at their face, and they're just, they're just calm. They're not agitated. They're, they're, they're peaceful. Nothing's bothering them. They have not a care in the world. And then there's some other soldiers, and, and they're agitated. They're tense. They're dodging bullets. You can see it on their face. There is nothing peaceful. Their, their heart is beating fast, and their face is drenched and sweat. What's the difference? What's the difference? One type of soldier is dead. And dead people don't flinch when bombs go off. Dead people don't even know there's a war going on. They don't know. So how does the Bible describe you if you were in Jesus? Alive. You were dead and now you're alive in Jesus. So here's the point. The battle, the battle that, that Paul is going through right here, that battle that you feel where you're like, I just want to be more holy. <laughs> like, I just want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Like, why am I still struggling with this sin? That fight is actually proof that you're alive. The dead soldiers don't even know there's a battle going on. <laughs> That's why they're not agitated. That's why they're not worried about that. They don't even know what's happening. And so if you're struggling with the sin, with sin, maybe something that's just been, been struggling with for a long time, fight. Make war, okay? Like, don't, don't just sit back and, and make war. That's what you were called to do. But the fight is actually proof that you're alive. You see that? The knowledge that you are sinful more than you ever dared believe is knowledge. It actually shows that you are alive because it's the one fighting for holiness that are sometimes left saying, what a wretched man that I am. That's point one. That's not the whole story. Here's point two, and I'll close with this. We are more loved than we ever dared hope. More sinful than we can imagine, but more loved than we can ever dare hope. And you know, I mean, every, every great story has a problem, Right? Has to have a, if you don't have a problem in the story, what's the point? In this chapter, actually, what I think is, is it's, it's Paul 
telling us the problem before he gets into the greatest story ever written, which is Romans chapter 8. Okay, like you're going to see over, you know, we're going to take four weeks on that. He's soaring. He's flying. What this is, is it's setting up the problem. And so this can feel very hopeless, but it's not. Romans 8 is the application. Romans 8 is the answer. But even in, in Romans 7, we get this glimmer of hope. So verse 24, Paul asks this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers this question. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when you look at the gospel, when you look at the cross, it makes clear that you are a wretched man or woman. But the gospel also lets you embrace that without it crushing you. Because it also reminds you how loved you are. You are so sinful, Jesus had to die for you. But you are so loved, he was willing to, right? So we hold both of those things. You are a wretched man or woman, but you are so loved that Jesus was willing to live the life you couldn't live and die the death that you deserve. By our standards, God has really bad taste in people because he chose us, right? He chose us. But it shows how much we are loved. And so we fight every day for godliness. We are in a war with sin, but we also rest in the fact that it is a war we cannot lose if you are in Jesus. He's going to say in Romans 8, you're more than a conqueror because Jesus has won the war for you. So let me pray, and then we're going to respond just by, by singing, and then I'll come back up and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. <laughs> thank you that, um, that you are a father who loves us dearly. Even though we are, we, we, we see it. We look at the cross and we see what wretched men and women we are, what sinners we are, what rebels we are against you and your cause. That we are sinful more than we could ever believe. But we have hope <laughs> because you love us. Oftentimes, I... I I can't imagine why, <laughs> but you do. You love us enough to, to die for us. The cross shows us that. It was done by us, but it was also done for us. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for how deep your love truly is and how you have proven that to us without a shadow of a doubt. Lord, be with us as we, as we just worship you now and give you the glory and honor that you deserve. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.